The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. In this group, in this class, we've been doing a series on uh, um, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, kind of an in-depth look at this topic. Um, and in the last weeks before I went away, we were it, we we are in the um, the middle of the ethics section of the Eightfold Path. So we started looking at wise action, and um, just looked at the first part of wise action, the intention or the refraining from taking life. And at the end of the class, I had you know I kind of had the inspiration to share the story of Angulimala, who was a mass murderer at the time of the Buddha. And I didn't really have time, so that's the that's what I'm going to do today. It's a little bit of a pause from directly speaking about the um, the eightfold path, but at the same time, the story to me, the story of this this person, and and there's some evidence perhaps that this is actually a historical story. There are um, um, multiple. Um, references multiple places that the story comes from and yet there are there are mythical and mythological elements to the story as well which i think happens as a, as a story gets embellished over 2500 years so there's both there's both sides to this story um and and the story i think it includes a lot about how ethics can support us and how um our aversion, our ignorance, our delusion creates conditions that has us acting in unethical ways and how holding to an ethical um, commitment can help us to um, avoid the traps and pitfalls of our ignorance, our delusion, our anger, our, our greed. And so, um, so it has it has a lot of relevance to this area that we're in in the in the eightfold path. And um, as I said, you know, I'm taking I'm taking we're taking as much time as as we need to go through this. So, um, you know, I actually and when I started this, I think I started it well, probably almost a year ago. This exploration we've started this exploration into the four noble truths and eightfold path it may go on for another year. So. I'm, I, 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 I've read in the suttas that all of the teachings of the Buddha can be found in the Eightfold Path. And so as we're wandering through the Eightfold Path, it's like, oh, this teaching fits in here. We'll talk about that now. And that's kind of what we're doing today. So we're exploring this, um, this story. Um, so the sources, just to, to tell you the sources of the story, um, the textual sources of the story come from the suttas. There's a, a sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, Majjhima 86, that tells the story of when this mass murderer, at that point his name is Angulimala, which basically stands for the Angulimala. Mala is the word for garland or necklace. You know, the word mala for uh, a string of beads, so that's that part of the word mala. And anguli means finger. And so uh, as this 
person went around killing people, he cut off one of their fingers, dried the flesh off the bones, and strung the bones into a, a mala. So he was called Angulimala. So the story um, of Angulimala meeting the Buddha is told in the Majjhima Nikaya. And uh, that's, that's the best-known part of the story, I think. But there's some, there's some um, supporting material uh, that tells basically the backstory, because by the time Angulimala meets the Buddha, by the time the story is told in the suttas, he's been a mass murderer for years. He's been, he's murdered 999 people by the time that the Buddha meets him. And so there's some stories elsewhere in the commentaries that talk about how he became a mass murderer in the first place. And so um, my source came from a um, primarily from a a book called The Great Disciples of the Buddha. And there's a whole chapter on Angulimala in that book. And it collects all of the textual references and puts it together in a kind of a narrative. So that's where I got this information. So the backstory. How did Angulimala become this, this, this person? Well, when he was um, born, he was born to a privileged family. He was born to the, one of the ministers. He was a son of one of the ministers of the king. And um, as the, that, that night that the, um, the boy was born, his father did a kind of a horoscope of his son and found out that he was born under what was called the robber constellation, which meant that he had tendencies towards being a thief, towards being somebody who had evil pr- propensities. And um, when the king, the king also had this kind of experience the night that this child was born, he woke up in the middle of the night and saw his weapons uh, shining. And so he told his minister, what's going on? You know, I've got these, this happened last night. And the, the minister said, well, it's probably because my son was born and he's got this kind of um, propensity. And so they discussed what to do about it. They debated killing the child. And, um, um, and, they, and the king, I think, said, let's not do that. Let's, you know, raise the child with as much love and care and compassion as you can. And, and let's see if um, that kind of transforms his, his propensities or um, lose, that, lose that direction. And so the child was named Ahimsaka. Part of this process was to uh, kind of give the child a name that would hopefully reflect the qualities that they wanted to cultivate. And ahimsaka means harmless. And so the child was named ahimsaka. And he grew up with a lot of love, a lot of care surrounding him, and he was um, well taken care of, well educated. He became very studious and um, was a very gentle and well-behaved boy, and um, he was very strong. He was a large boy. And as he grew, he became very, very strong. Uh, but he was studious and intelligent. And his father sent him to um, the best university in India, uh, where he was accepted by the best teacher. 
the foremost teacher of that of that uh, university, and he um, was so studious and so conscientious that he surpassed all the other students at the university, and he became the um, the teacher's favorite student, the teacher's pet, basically. And the condition for this led to the other students becoming very jealous. So in their jealousy, they felt like they were no longer getting the attention of the teacher. And um, uh, I'll read some of this from Helmuth Hecker's uh, words. This made his fellow students so jealous. Since that young Ahimsaka came, we are almost forgotten. Since that young Ahimsaka came, we are almost forgotten. We must put a stop to it and cause a break between him and the teacher. The well-tried way of slander and defamation was not easy, as neither Ahimsaka's studiousness nor his conduct and noble ancestry gave, him an, gave an open for denigrating him. And so the, uh, the, the students said, we have to alienate the teacher from him and cause a break. So they decided that three groups of people should approach the teacher at different intervals and basically tell lies about Ahimsaka. The first group of pupils went to the teacher and said, some talk is being heard around the house. What is it? We believe it is about Ahimsaka plotting against you. Hearing this, the teacher became excited and scolded them. Get away, you miserable lot. Do not try to cause dissension between me and my son. After some time, the second set of pupils spoke to him in a similar way. So also a third group, which added, If our teacher does not trust us, he may examine it himself and find out. Finally, the poisonous seed of suspicion took root in his heart, and he came to believe that Ahimsaka, so strong in body and mind, actually wanted to push him out. Once suspicion is roused, one can always find something that seems to confirm it. So I'm going to pause in the story here and kind of look at what we've, you know, the kind of the teachings that are embedded in the story to this point. So the first part is the jealousy of the, of the students. Ahimsaka is doing his thing <clears throat> and his teacher loves him and the other students become, become jealous. And this human emotion is pretty powerful. It creates conditions for us to want to take action um, to, and can lead to unskillful action to deprive somebody from something. If you're jealous, you know, somebody has something you want, you want to take it from them, you want to prevent them from having it. And so these actions arise from this this strong emotion. And so um, they decided to take action through speech. And actually, this is a point that, as as I reviewed the story yesterday and this morning, it kind of highlighted to me this... um, the piece around speech coming before action in the Eightfold Path, right speech coming before right action. It had always been kind of an interesting thing that I hadn't really 
you know, I, new. I, it's like, I wonder why rise action doesn't come first. Action seems more obvious. Seems like something that we should, you know, that, that that should be the thing that we pay attention to first. But in this case, um, you know, the, it is the, the speech. In this story, it really is highlighting that speech. In this case, the, 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 um, um, the students becoming jealous and then speaking to the teacher that kind of sets this whole thing in motion. So that speech motivates action. So this is an important thing for us to, uh, to attend to. How powerful speech is in our world. And I think this is you know, part of the reason it is so highlighted in the ethical section of the Eightfold Path. As, as Joseph has pointed out, Joseph Goldstein has pointed out, wise speech has four different aspects to it. Refraining from False speech, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from divisive speech, refraining from idle chatter. And the, there's you know, said to be ten courses of unwholesome action. Four related to speech, three related to action, and three related to mind. And of that, he, as Joseph points out, four of the ten are related to speech. And so this is a major area for us to attend to, this area of speech, to look at when we are inclined to speak out of anger, out of aversion, and how does that affect our speech. In this case, the speech is slanderous, divisive. This is the, the kind of speech the students picked up, is divisive speech. They wanted to divide the teacher from Angulimala. And the way they did it, <coughs> essentially, was propaganda repeatedly telling something to somebody multiple times. They did this three-time thing, telling the teacher three times, three different ways from different directions, this story. This, th- this points to how powerful, again, how powerful speech is, but how powerful um, lies can be. I mean, we see this in our, in our society so I mean, this is a huge part of, of what's happening in our culture right now. The, the way that false speech, fake news, is being propagated. And we tend to... I actually read a study about um, this, this aspect of our mind to believe what we hear without checking it out, without... Um, Um, you know, without taking the time to consider, is this true? And in this particular study, it's actually even more amazing that um, they they told, in this study, they they had a group of people who they told a story about um, firefighters and whether they were um, um, aggressive and... Um, breaking the rules to fight fires or whether they were cautious and following all the rules to fight fires. And in the different stories, either the person who was aggressive was successful or less successful, and the, or the person who was cautious was successful or less su- successful. And um, in whatever story the people heard, just one telling of the story, 
the people uh, who, who, whatever story they heard when they were quizzed later, you know, what do they think about firefighters and whether they should, you know, be um, uh, aggressive or, there's another word, I can't think of the word, they didn't use aggressive, but whether they should be um, uh, brave and, you know, breaking the rules to fight fires or whether they should be cautious or following all the rules. The beliefs that were um, created followed the story that they had read. So one exposure to that story shaped that belief. And not only that, I mean, the more amazing thing about this particular study is that right after they got this information, right after that, the first time they heard this story, they were told this was a made-up story. This has no basis in reality. And still, it shaped their views. It shaped their minds. And so this, to me, points out, you know, it doesn't even take multiple exposures. Propaganda, false news, the first thing we hear tends to stick. And so this is, you know, this is a, is a warning to us. We need to uh, recognize this propensity. You know, when we, when we have this propensity to basically believe the first thing we hear, you know, if we're, if we're just going along in our usual way, then we'll, we'll just go that way. But we can, knowing this about our minds, and it just seems to be a human propensity, knowing this about our minds, we can put a pause in there check the sources. And so this is important for us to, to recognize. And so the, um, so the other piece of it here in the story is that, you know, the multiple times, it was clear the first time the, the teacher did just didn't believe them. That he, he felt like, yeah, this is from jealousy. You know, the students are trying to separate me. This is, this is crap, basically. And so the, you know, but the second time, the third time, and the third time the, the people asked, said is, well, check it out. You know, if you don't trust us, look for yourself. And to me, that's an additional little piece that can sow a little bit more suspicion. You know, basically, check it out means see if you can find evidence for this. And... Um, as the story says, once the suspicion is roused, one can always find something that seems to confirm it. And this is another aspect of our minds, another kind of way our minds tend to work, that when we have some kind of a belief, if we are looking for things to support it, we can find them. And so this is, this is um, kind of a frightening aspect of our minds, that delusion, that filter of belief, of view. In, in the psychological world right now, this is called confirmation bias. Whatever we believe when we look out at the world, we tend to see things that confirm it, and we don't see things that disconfirm it. And so again, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a frightening aspect of our minds, but knowing that, it's there, helps us to, instead of looking for something to confirm something, we can instead look for something to disconfirm it. You know, just look for evidence on both sides. Even that can be challenging when you're really stuck in a view. And so... (coughs) 
in this story, the information that the students are giving the teacher is false. But repeated with confidence, the students planted the seed of doubt. Given that, given that seed of doubt, the teacher found evidence to support it. So the teacher's suspicion grew to conviction. And this is where the kind of the story really takes a, a turn because the teacher um, felt like Angulimala, or actually Ahimsaka at that point, he wasn't called Angulimala at that point, Ahimsaka was trying to push him out of the university and kind of take his place. And so the teachers uh, felt like he must um, kill him or get him killed. But he considered it's not easy to kill such a strong man. Besides, if he's slain while living here as my pupil, it will harm my reputation and my students may no longer come to me. I must think of some other device to get rid of him as well as punish him. And so what he decides to do is... um, is to uh, tell Angulimala that he has to perform a ritual action in order to complete his studies and that this ritual action is required in order for his um, studies to be fulfilled. You know, that that there's this kind of um, uh, belief in um, rituals having a an effect um, in terms of the development of our hearts and minds. And um, for Ahimsaka, he said, it is a duty to give a gift of honor to his teacher. And Ahimsaka says, certainly, what may I give? You must bring me a thousand human little fingers of the right hand. This is what the teacher told him. Now, initially, <coughs> Himsaka was revulsed by this and, um, and said, I can't do that. You know, my family is harmless. We've always been harmless. And the teacher basically said, well, <coughs> then your studies will come to naught. This is what's required. And so Angulimala goes forth with this as his aim. <coughs> disturbing about this. We have a teacher, a respected, revered teacher who's telling his student to take human fingers. He didn't actually tell him to kill the people. That's a important that's not important. I mean I don't know if it's important, but that's a, a thing that's that's noted here in this story that instead of just searching out people and cutting off their fingers, (laughs) he decided to kill them and cut off their fingers. And so Angulimala took that further. It may be, I mean, it may be that, um, um, you know, in terms of the... uh, You know, the way the precepts are worded... 
um, and the, the understanding of the, the Buddhist precepts. You know, I don't know if at that time whether the, the kind of the Buddhist precepts were a part of the other um, sects, the other religious groups at the time of the Buddha, because clearly this is a different group. This is a different kind of religious order that this student is in at this university. Um, but for the um, the right action, the the precept around refraining from killing, which is what we were talking about the last time I was here, um, the uh, you are you are you break the precept. It's it's a a violation of the precept. Either if you directly kill, intentionally directly kill. So that's an important part. You're intentionally killing. Uh, as opposed to like walking across the lawn and accidentally stepping on a spider that you don't even know is there. That's not breaking the precept because you're not intentionally killing that being. So the intentional killing of a being or the encouragement, the, the asking somebody to kill, that is also considered a, vi- a breaking of the precept. And so here... The teacher doesn't actually ask him to kill. He does ask him to harm, which is, you know, a violation of that, <laughs> of that part of the, of the precept. So, again, there's so much going on here. The, the teacher has been told things that aren't true, but believes they are true. His actions are based on that. So he thinks he's acting out of true information. If he knew it wasn't true, he probably wouldn't be taking these actions. And yet he is encouraging, there's many other ways to respond to something like this than encouraging somebody to go and harm. And so that's, you know, that's the teacher's kind of twist, the teacher's unethical kind of piece, is that his choice is to act out of anger and aversion and delusion to create the conditions for Angulimala to kill or maim people. His intention here, or his hope here, is that these actions will create uh, conditions for Angulimala to be hunted down and killed. And that is essentially what, what happens over time. Now the students were lying. They knew they were lying wanting to get rid of something they didn't like. And so this, you know, again, is a piece of this kind of, it it, it creates this tapestry in a way of how unethical conduct interweaves. The lies of the students created the belief of the teacher, which created the action for harming. So the, you know, the students kind of set this whole thing into motion through their jealousy. So I think another piece that is kind of interesting to recognize or point to is how, um, you know, this kind of thing around somebody acting out of misinformation, creating a ripple effect that creates so much harm in the world, especially when that person has a lot of power. So the teacher was a powerful person. He, in a way, had this kind of 
a power over Angulimala. And this is some of the, the kind of the question in the story. It's like, why did Angulimala follow, these, follow the teacher? It's, it, there's no information in the, in the stories about the motivation or why Angulimala followed the teacher. Um, there's a couple of, of kind of speculations. One is that um, his teacher asked him to do it. And in certain uh, religious orders in, in India, there's a very strong guru ma- ma- mentality where you basically do what your teacher tells you to do. There's an unquestioning following of your teacher. And so this is a piece, potentially, of, of why Angulimala did it. The other piece is kind of pointing back to the early part of the story where it was said that he was born under this um, robber constellation. So essentially he had some inborn kind of tendencies towards violence and evil, which had been um, conditioned in some ways out of him, at least for the early part of his life. But that, that there's some speculation or some kind of pointing to that this request kind of tapped into that kind of old karma, the old conditioning from prior lives um, was what, what that is pointing to, that, that, that our, we come into this world with some kind of prior um, inclinations. And so... Um, I want to stop again or just briefly pause again about the the piece around power you know the 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 power that the teacher had there um you know that's this is not a small thing actually um if you perceive or if someone perceives someone has authority there is a strong tendency to do what that person says. The classic studies of this happened at Stanford, um, the Milgram studies. Many of you probably heard about this. If you took a Psychology 101 class, you probably heard about this. Here's a brief, a brief summary of that study. Oh, it was at Yale, sorry, not Stanford. I set up a simple experiment at Yale University to test how much pain an ordinary citizen would inflict on another person simply because he was ordered to do by an experimental scientist. Stark authority was pitted against the participant's strongest moral imperative against hurting others. And with the participant's ears ringing with the screams of the victims, authority won more often than not. The extreme willingness of adults to go to almost any lengths on the command of an authority constitutes the chief finding of the study and the fact most urgently demanding explanation. This, you know, this happened following, it was 1961, you know, following World War II. Um, Some of the questions around, you know, um, Nazis and would, I wouldn't have done that well, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Variations in this study, and I think this is important, um, show that when people are reminded that they carry the responsibility for their actions in the experiment, almost none are prepared to obey the authority. 
So there's something about the power and the authority where we give over our responsibility. Oh, that person's responsible. And when, when we're reminded that we are responsible, it really shifts and reminds us of our own ethical, you know, our own ethical realm. And so this, again, this is something that we can remind ourselves of. I am responsible for my actions, no matter what. If somebody tells me to do something, if I take the action, there is responsibility here. So in the story, in the, in the Angulimala story, there seems to be some trust in the authority, as well as some willingness to kind of follow through. And we can also see, too, in this kind of um, uh, the kind of story around uh, how authority affects us, a recognition of how helpful it is to ground ourselves in ethics in our actions. And if somebody does, if somebody in authority does ask us to do unethical things, that we we can use the ethics, the non-harming ethics, to help counter, to um, help us remember, this is not helpful. This is not a direction for ease and peace. So ethics can counter Remembering ethics, remembering our ultimate responsibility can help to counter forces of aversion, forces of delusion, forces of ignorance in our minds. And so this is a powerful piece of of ethics, I think, is how, how potent it is to help us not follow the, uh, the movement of delusion in our in our minds. And so Angulimala, to continue the story, he goes off and does start killing people to um, get his fingers, create the garland. And he basically uh, terrorizes the neighborhood where he is. Um, What does it say? He lived on the high cliff from where he could observe the road below. When he saw travelers approaching, he hurried down, slew them, and took one finger from each of his victims. At the, after that point, people shunned the forest and decided, I'm not going down that road. So then he had to start going into the villages and raiding homes and killing people in their homes. And then they fled the villages. And so after quite a while of this, um, the uh, the people in that area went to the king and said you got to do something about this guy you know he is like killing all of these people and so the king uh the king decides to send out an army of people to uh, to find angulimala and to kill him so at this point in the story um his mother angulimala's mother kind of hears about this guy at this point, he's called Angulimala because he's well known for the, the finger trick and is wearing this garland of human bones. And so that's the name he's given. And so uh, while uh, Ahimsaka's mother doesn't really know it's her son, she has this intuition. 
So she, she thinks, this is probably my son um, reverting back to what he was prophesied to, to be. And, um, and she um, decides that she wants to go and, and find him. So she, she decides to go into the forest to find him so that she can talk to him, hoping to get his mind, to, to, to help him recognize, no, stop this, you know, give yourself up, don't do this anymore. At the same time, the Buddha hears about this story. And this is where some of the ma- mystical elements potentially begin to come in. Um, this is where the, the Majima Nikaya story picks up. Um, the Buddha... Um, surveying Angulimala, he, he kind of, you know, surveys with his mind, which he said to have this capacity to do, to kind of pick up on any individual and kind of understand who they are, what their stream of life is like, and what their cap- capacities are, what their capabilities are, what they've done, how they ha- are engaging in the world. And so he surveyed Angulimala, and he found that he had the capacity to completely liberate his mind in this life if he did not kill his mother, which he also saw that his mother was on the way to, uh, to see Angulimala, and uh, the Buddha recognized he's going to kill his mother. And killing your mother in the kind of the metaphysical understanding of the, uh, the precept of non-killing. In the metaphysical understanding of the precept of not killing there's five classes of people that if you kill them in this life, there's no way for you to free your mind in this life. The, the kind of the karma, the, the kind of ripple effects, the rebound effect of that action would be so great. I mean, essentially, you know, if you kill, if you kill a parent... Um, you know, think about what, what might happen if you sit down in meditation, if you repent and sit down in meditation after having killed a parent. I mean, not to mention 999 people, but um, after having killed a parent, you know, the, the rebound effect is, of that is said to be so strong that there would be no way to settle the mind enough to be able to free it from delusion in this life. And so that's a kind of a metaphysical understanding. In, in, in the Buddhist understanding of um, ethics, redemption is always possible. Not necessarily in this life, but with the understanding of multiple lives. It's, it's not that um, in the Buddhist understanding that killing uh, 999 people and then his mother that he would go to hell for eternity but that he would be reborn into a hell realm where he would live for eons and then at some point he would be reborn out of that realm maybe back into the human realm at which point there would be the possibility of that mind stream not that it's Angulimala still, but that that mind stream, that, that stream of karma, that stream of unfolding actions um, would, uh, would have a possibility for, for freedom, for redemption at some point in the future. And so the Buddha surveying this, um, this situation with his mind sees that uh, he's about ready to kill his mother 
or will kill his mother if his mother comes into into the forest and uh, and so um he 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 sees that even having killed 999 people angulimala has the capacity to completely transform in this life full redemption in this life if the buddha intervenes and so he decides to go into the forest kind of short-circuiting the path so that his mother would would not be the first person that angulimala came into contact with and so the story unfolds that angulimala does see his mother knows it's his mother but is so at this point he's only one finger away from fulfilling his duty to his guru he's going to kill his mother but then the buddha appears and he says oh why should i kill my mother i'll kill this i'll kill this recluse he's he's just walking slowly he'll be easy he'll be easy to kill and so uh, another this is another place where the kind of magical realm comes in because the buddha does this kind of trick somehow where he continues walking very slowly step by step just a slow walking meditation through the forest and angulimala is running as fast as he can and he can't catch up with him this was um surprising to angulimala and it, he says um angulimala said it's marvelous formerly i caught up even with a galloping elephant and seized it i caught up even with a galloping horse and seized it i caught up even with a galloping chariot and seized it but even though i'm going as fast as i can i'm unable to catch up with this monk who's walking at his normal pace and he stopped and he called out stop monk stop and the buddha kept walking his slow pace angulimala had stopped he had stopped trying to catch up and the buddha kept walking at his slow pace and angulimala is calling stop and as the buddha is walking in his slow pace he says to angulimala i have stopped angulimala you need to stop too And those words kind of startled Angulimala because he thought I have stopped physically the this monk is still walking but he's telling me he has stopped and I haven't I don't understand and he said what do you mean tell me the meaning of this how is it that you have stopped and I haven't and the buddha said i have stopped forever for swearing violence to every living being but you have no restraint towards things that breathe so that is why i have stopped and you have not and so this the the teaching here was essentially around ethics and um kind of he knew that he put he put anguli's mind into this kind of place where he could receive a teaching receive some wisdom receive the the understanding of how um um ethics is a crucial part of our development and so when angulimala heard these words something really transformed in him and you know we don't know what happened here 
You know, it seems like a small thing that the Buddha said. I've stopped. You haven't. You need to stop. But something about perhaps the Buddha's presence, something about the way he spoke, something about the kind of mystical, magical experience he'd had perhaps around not being able to catch the Buddha, shook his mind up. And so he seemed to be willing to transfer his allegiance to the Buddha. And um, he became a disciple of the Buddha. And the Buddha, knowing his capacities, accepted him into the order. He had him find robes, shave his head, sit with the Buddha, learn the teachings, begin to meditate. And still, at this time, of course, in the story, there's the, there's the um, whole uh, army, the king's army that's looking for Angulimala. And um, they come upon the Buddha sitting in a grove with a, a retinue of his monks, and they say, basically say to him, have you seen Angulimala? And... Um, uh, he also, uh, the, the king also warned the Buddhists, like, you know, you're, you're in this forest and there's this marauding, like, murderer around. You've got to be careful. And, um, and the Buddha, instead of responding to the question, says, hmm, if you were to see Angulimala with shaven head gone forth from the home life into homelessness, that he was abstaining from killing living beings, living a blameless life, how would you treat him? And the king said, we should pay homage to him, invite him to accept the four requisites. But how could such an unvirtuous person have transformed in this way? And then the Buddha said, this king is Angulimala, the, 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 one, the monk that was standing next to the Buddha, fanning him. This is Angulimala. And it's said that the king's hair stood on end. <laughs> And yet he did. Uh, the, the Buddha said, "The Buddha said, do not be afraid. There's nothing for you to fear." And the king paid respects to Angulimala and accepts the Buddha's word for Angulimala. Now, this is an interesting piece here too, because this is an interesting counterpoint. I haven't seen this highlighted anywhere. In the early part of the of the um, the story. Uh, Angulimala accepted the teacher's word that he needed to kill. In this part of the story, the king is accepting the Buddha's word that he has nothing to fear, that he should not kill Angulimala. And so in both cases, there is a kind of a respecting of authority. It seems to me that in this case, the, the, the king is saying, Okay, Buddha, I'll trust you, but, you know, okay, <laughs> let's see how this goes. And so what's the difference there? You know, how, how might it be different, those two situations? You know, in one case, the authority is asking the person to violate ethical precepts. In the other case, the authority is asking 
not to violate ethical precepts, not to kill Angulimala. So you know, that's an interesting thing for us to reflect on. That who is worth our respecting? Who is worth our uh, taking as a person of authority? Someone who does honor these ethical precepts. So as these um, stories go, um, Angulimala did become fully enlightened. Uh, Many of these stories uh, in the suttas do end with this kind of a happy ending. Um, And yet, you know, reflecting on this, uh, I can all, you know, just like, there's a couple of pieces of this I like to reflect on and remember. One is, when you sit in meditation, what happens? You know, your, your past arrives in your mind, in the present, with memories, with thoughts. You relive the horror of your misdeeds. You feel joy when you remember beautiful things that happen. And so your mind is shaped by, you know, your past, essentially. And in this case, I, you know... I can't even imagine what it must have been like to sit in meditation and remember the, uh, the events, remember killing all of those people. And yet he persisted. He had the kind of strength of heart to recognize this is the way forward. To recognize in a lot of ways, you know, what we do is we feel the pain. When, when he was engaged in the killing... So much delusion in his mind. He was not feeling the pain and the suffering of that action. The process of purification, the process of, cling, of, of, of um, how meditation often works is that we do feel the pain of our unwholesome actions at some point. This is the way, this is the way karma works. You know, that we, we feel the effect and the, the opening to that and not continuing the same patterns, the same actions off of that, but stopping as the story, as the story of the Buddha saying, stop feeling the pain, feeling the suffering that it created in his own life, in the, in the lives of his victims. That is a transformative kind of experience. It's hard. It's a hard thing to go through. But that is how our practice purifies us. It's it, it's very good word actually. You know the purification process. It's it's not pleasant often, and yet we can we as we begin to trust the process. As we begin to trust that feeling the suffering, but not like following through with anger and aversion and delusion based on that suffering, but instead allowing it to be held with mindfulness, feeling that suffering to be held with mindfulness, transforms it into compassion, transforms it into wise action. And initially this is hard to trust. But we, even even with um, a few uh, months of meditation practice, we can begin to see how this works begin to see how this is helpful. And so the uh, Angulimala persisted and became fully enlightened. 
Now this did not um, uh, change the view of the people in the neighborhood about him. And so when he went out for alms, instead of giving him food, they threw rocks and clods of dirt and sticks at him. And when Angulimala came back and said, reported this to the Buddha, he said, you know, this is, this is your karma. This is the results of your actions. And he said, the words the Buddha said, I think this is from the, the Majjama. Bear it. You, have, you are experiencing here and now the ripening of karma, whose ripening you might have experienced in hell over eons. And so basically pointing to, you know, it's like, we don't get to, we don't get to say, you know, if we become fully enlightened, if we, if we, if we, um, if our hearts become free of greed, aversion, and delusion, we still are responsible for our past deeds. And there will still be effects of that in this life that that still can play out as it, as, it, as it shows here. That, you know, people, the king, the king trusted the Buddha and, you know, followed his, his, guide, his guidance. The people of the neighborhood could not bring themselves to offer food to somebody who had murdered their sons, their daughters, their wives, their husbands. This makes sense. And so... The, 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 one of the things I, I like to, to reflect on here, so kind of the key kind of pieces for myself, is the store, is the power of the redemptive, the, the redemption that's possible. Now, Angulimala murdered 999 people, and having met the Buddha, transformed his mind, his life, his heart, became a completely different person. Redemption is possible even for a mass murderer. And the, the, the teachings point to this possible over multiple lives, if not in this life, as, as, the, as the possibility of, you know, if he'd killed his mother, would have prevented that from happening in this life. And so for me, um, as I look into my mind, you know, and see things of my past where done things not terribly skillful there were times in my practice where I felt like I thought like I'm not worthy of freedom things I've done in my past I'm not worthy of this and then I would remember Angulimala it's like well if Angulimala was worthy then I'm worthy and so this this story has been a personal inspiration to me So there's a little bit more to the story, but that was the key piece. Those are the key pieces in the in the side around the ethics um, piece. And I hope this was interesting, useful, and it's time to stop. So thank you for your attention.